0: This is the word of our God. Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and news of him went out through all the surrounding region. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him and marvelled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth and they said is this not joseph's son and he said to them you will surely say this proverb to me physician heal yourself whatever we have heard done in capernaum do also here in your country and he said assuredly i say to you no prophet is accepted in his own country But I tell you, truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months. And there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon, to a widow, a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet. And none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city. And they led him to the brow of the hill on which the city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. Then passing through the midst of them, he went his way. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for these words of power that can never fail. And we do ask in this hour that their truth would prevail over unbelief. Renew our minds, Father. Help us to grasp the heights of your plan for us. Even as we gaze on Christ, may we hear his voice, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Remember, Luke begins his gospel that this is a gospel of certainty. And as we gaze on Christ here, we find a man who is certain about himself and certain about other people. I think that's important because of how often in church history and in our own day, especially people, even theologians who ought to know better, suggest that maybe Christ wasn't aware of his deity at first or wasn't aware of his calling. They are simply ignoring scripture. Here, Christ is clear about who he is. And he's clear about his audience. But not only is he clear about himself and clear about his audience, he desires the audience to be clear about him. And he desires us to be clear about him and about ourselves. And so as we gaze at this, that's our desire. It should be our desire. What is Christ saying about himself? What is he saying about us. We find here in this passage, Christ uh, has just uh, finished his his uh, 40 day uh, of starvation and temptation in the wilderness. Satan has fled from him. Remember that it was the spirit who fell on him at his baptism to empower him for his ministry. It was the spirit who drove him into the wilderness to be tempted. And then it was the spirit who took him and brought him back in the power of the Spirit to begin his ministry publicly. And he does so, and we see the Spirit's power. We read there in 14 and 15, he's preaching, and the result is there's a lot of people giving him glory. That is, there are a lot of people at least somewhat seeing what he is saying and believing it. The, the extent to which we're going to keep seeing throughout the Gospel isn't full at first, but they at least catch something that is worthy of glorifying God in his ministry. He's becoming popular among the people, and everywhere he goes, he is handed the scroll at the at the local synagogue. That wasn't always done. This was this was given if you were a traveling rabbi, you might be handed the scroll and asked to preach. In their synagogues, they had a, a number of of scripture readings. In fact, if you've uh, never attended a synagogue service, and I'm not suggesting you start attending synagogue services, but if you do, you'll notice they, they actually, they may have more scripture reading in their service than we have in ours. And ours is quite packed. Uh, but there, there's a lot of scripture reading at a synagogue service. Most of it is lectionary meaning they're reading the next part of what they read last week. If, if you were one of the, the leaders and you're going to get up and read, you would go to the next portion. If last week Bill read from Revelation 2, then next week I'll read from Revelation 3. Of course, not that in a synagogue because that's the New Testament bad example. But if you're reading from Psalm 100 one week, the next week the next reader will read from Psalm 101. Most of it's lectionary, but they do have at least one text which is selected by the speaker for him to preach from. And that's what we find as our Lord, as he travels throughout Galilee, comes to his hometown of Nazareth. He's been received everywhere else. Now he comes to Nazareth. What is only implied in our text, but is explicitly stated in Matthew, is that everywhere he went, he preached, and then as people received the preaching, he would heal people. He would perform miracles that would testify that, well, if such a one can raise the the person who's never walked and now they're walking, if such a person can come to the terminally ill and cause them to be healthy again, then surely his message must be true as well. And so Matthew shows us that all these Galilean cities he went to, he preached first. That was his purpose, he says in Matthew. And then he does the miracles to support the message. Now he comes to Nazareth and he preaches, but he's not going to do any miracles because they do not receive the message. It's a, important point i'll let you think about more because it's not luke's primary point here but he comes to nazareth his hometown he is handed the scroll of isaiah remember they don't have one book that has the entire old testament in it when we read book here we really mean scroll i think the esv put scroll uh and that would be accurate more accurate than book And it's particularly Isaiah. But then Christ gets to choose which part of Isaiah he's going to read from. And he chooses Isaiah 61. And he only reads one and a half verses. And then he slams the book shut. I think that's why the New King James puts book. Because it sounds better. It gets the point across more firmly. Uh, But it would be rolls up the scroll, hands it back. And then he sits down in the teacher's chair. Because... We read sit down and we think sitting down in the pew and they would they would read sit down and everyone else is standing and he's sitting because that's how they taught at that point. I wouldn't like that because I like standing and you wouldn't like that because you probably don't want to stand up for one of my sermons. But uh, that's how they did that. Christ sits down and he begins to preach and the first sentence of his sermon makes it very clear who he is. He reads Isaiah 61, and then he says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That's my theme for today, that right now, Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 are fulfilled in your hearing. Now I will develop my points. Actually, he doesn't do that, does he? The rest of his sermon doesn't feel like it fits with his theme. But that, that gets into our second point, that he is clear about who they are. He's certain about who they are. But his point about who he is, he is, he says, the fulfillment of this verse. <coughs> Excuse me. Isaiah 61 was understood, they all would have understood. It's the voice, the prophetic voice of the Messiah who was to come. The one whom in just a few ver- chapters previous in Isaiah was known as the suffering servant. And there were all those songs about what the, the servant of the Lord would do. And then in Isaiah 61, he, he comes and he speaks about what he is there to do. And they anticipated such a Messiah. Such a Messiah, if we want to break it down kind of the way our catechisms do, we could say such a Messiah fulfills prophet, priest, and king. And we see those things not all equally obvious in Isaiah 61. We see uh, that he is the prophet from God. He says clearly he came to preach good tidings, to proclaim, to proclaim To comfort. He is a prophet. He comes with God's word for God's people. But then the comfort that comes to God's people is the rest of his task. He is to be their king. That is, he is to give liberty to captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the day of vengeance as the king who comes both to declare not guilty and the king who comes to declare guilty. You see that in Isaiah 61. But Isaiah 61 also reflects on the priesthood of Christ. It's not as obvious to us, but if you think about the task of the, prof, the uh, priests as declared in Leviticus, they were to declare people clean when they had been unclean and came to the temple. If someone had been sick, they needed to come and have the priest declare them no longer sick. In other words, while the priest didn't heal you, the priest did declare you healed. And so when Christ says, I am to declare, to give beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garments of praise for the spirit of heaviness, That they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. Those are all priestly declarations, priestly tasks to declare that the people are now righteous because God has provided atonement for them to declare the Lord's blessing upon the people. And so here, if we want to be technical about it, Christ is reading a, a text that shows us the prophet, the priest and the king. And he's saying, I'm fulfilling it all right here today. Now, the people didn't initially catch that. They probably thought he was being more like John. Oh, it's about to happen. But who's who's about to do this? And I think we can presume that they were thinking that way because initially their thought was, wow, what gracious words. What a marvelous thing to say. It's only when he makes it very clear he's talking about himself and how he views them that they take him out to kill him. So initially, it's, it's I'm sure, the way every preacher feels when he goes and preaches in his home church. Things like, oh, bless your heart, you're a preacher now. Oh, don't you remember when I actually had a list I was going to share of things that I did when I was young. And thankfully, the people I did them to were so gracious when I preached at that church. But I'm pretty sure my quality of preaching goes down there because I, I get the sermon and I get up to the pulpit and then I see all these faces that I sinned against. Or I had a Sunday school teachers and pff, uh, I've never preached a good sermon from that pulpit. Uh, but... I think initially that's what we see going on. Oh, here's Joseph's boy. Do you remember? Maybe even something like this. Do you remember when he and Joseph came over and fixed our roof? He was so nice as he worked on our roof. And now he's a preacher. Bless his heart. It's so cute, isn't it? Until he makes it more clear. This is fulfilled in your hearing today because I am. He. Now he doesn't have to say that. He says it kind of in a backward way. You're not going to accept me. You, you keep hearing of all these miracles I'm doing other places. And you're going to say, how about some healing of yourself? Meaning your hometown. You're going around healing everyone else. We want some of that here. In fact if you could have done that as a child, why didn't you do it here? I I think this is actually a good text to, to defend the idea that Christ didn't go around doing miracles as a child because they're all wondering, why didn't you heal yourself, physician? Why aren't you doing some of that miracle working here, Christ? He won't do it here because they reject him. They don't have faith. So he is clear about himself. I am the Messiah. I am the one filled with the spirit. I am the one who has come anointed to preach the gospel. I am the one who has come to heal the broken hearted, to proclaim liberty, to recover sight for the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. That's me. I'm here. He's clear about who he is. He wants them to be clear about who he is. And so he presses the point home in verses 23 through 27. And they get his point. They do get his point. That's why they try to kill him. This week in uh, men's, well, this last week in our men's group, our, our reading uh, reflected back on that famous Lewis quote, where Lewis, Lewis declares that if we take Jesus at his own word, then we are left with three options that he is either a liar, a lunatic, or he's Lord. And I was thinking about how well this text reflects on that idea. We could even make it a little more simple. We could say that this text, Christ, by his own word, leaves two options. To declare him blasphemer or Messiah. He's either an insane blasphemer. And being a blasphemer, whether you are insane or not, bore the penalty of death. Or he's a lying blasphemer, which also deserves death in Israel. Or he's telling the truth, and he's the Messiah. And that's going to require something of them. They're not willing to give. And so they do what would have been right if he was a blasphemer. They try to take him out and execute him, casting him off a cliff. Now, I don't know how he got away. He passed through them. Was that a miracle? Is the only miracle that takes place in his hometown, Jesus escaping them? Or was it that his authority shines through here and he just starts walking away and they don't do anything about it? That would be based on his real identity, wouldn't it? We don't know what this means. The scriptures are rather unclear. I think on purpose. Because remember what just happened? Satan took him up on top of the pinnacle and said, jump off, perform a miracle, have the Father save you. And Jesus doesn't do it there, but the Father does save Jesus from falling off this height just days later. God does protect his servant. And his servant does experience that. Here. Not in Satan's timing. But as Christ trusted his father, the father quickly shows the son, you're not going to be cast off this height. Christ escapes. But... They are going to kill him because he is clear about who he is. This is the challenge for us. If Christ presented himself so clearly, in the end of the day, we're stuck with those same two options, Messiah or blasphemer. Now, in the New Testament age, we don't take the blasphemer out and kill them in the parking lot. But the blasphemer is, if unrepentant, someone who is to be put out of the church. And I say that not in some goofy way to say we should excommunicate Christ if he's not Messiah, but to to show us the seriousness, the equivalent of how we ought to respond. If Christ isn't everything he said he was, then whatever this religion is, it shouldn't have the name Christ on it. That should be put out. If Christ is only a good teacher, but he's claiming to be the Messiah. If he's just a great guru, but he's claiming to be the Messiah. If he isn't the Messiah, then we ought to go back to the synagogues next Saturday and have nothing more to do with Christ. And I I say that because we are surrounded in evangelicalism of our day with people who are, who are saying this. I know I, earlier on in this series, I know I've reflected on this. I've shared some of the quotes that Jesus may not be who the church has always said he was. And we need to be very firm in responding, very clear and certain in responding. Then stop calling yourself a Christian. Go back to the synagogue if that was correct. Just stop doing religion and be a nice person if that is correct. But don't use the name of someone that you claim is a blasphemer, a liar, or a lunatic as the name of your religion. We need to be clear about who Christ is with ourselves and with others. He claims to be the Messiah. We also see in this passage what he claims about them and this is a little less blatant isn't it but what he's claiming about them is that they are poor and broken and needy he he doesn't explicitly say that does he he just implies it very strongly Today, I'm declaring to poor people the gospel. And you're my audience. You must be poor. Today, I'm coming to heal the brokenhearted. Today, I'm coming to proclaim liberty to captives. You must be in chain. Oh, we aren't slaves of anyone. Today, to declare recovery of sight to the blind. I can see. But we see in verses 23 through 27, what Christ is saying to them. He's saying to them what he says later in the book of Revelation to another. He says to them, you say I am rich, have become wealthy, And have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. That's the message he's preaching to them. You don't see that you have this need. You want the miracles without the repentance. You want the miracles without receiving me as your Messiah and Redeemer. You want the miracles without saying, we need salvation. We need help. We need, because we do not have. You want the miracles. So you say, physician, just heal yourself. Stop preaching Jesus and start doing the things we keep hearing you're doing for everyone else. We got a potluck after dinner. We heard something about a wedding with some great wine. Let's have more of that and less of this preaching. My cousin down the road can't come to church. She's sick. Why don't you just walk down the road and heal her? We want that. Less of this preaching at us. He says, you're going to ask for that, but here's why you don't get it. And then here's the implication that they all pick up on. You're like Israel who didn't repent in Elijah and Elisha's day. That's what he's saying, isn't it? 24 through 27. He reflects back on a time when two people received miracles. And it wasn't because only two people needed healing and food. But only two people and them both Gentile sinners received what no one else received. Because they both were humble before God. They both repented before God, fell on their knees and sought to worship the one living and true God. And they weren't even Jews. There were many widows starving for three and a half years. You realize Christ is saying there were many widows who actually died of starvation during three and a half years. And some widows who probably buried their children who died of starvation during three and a half years who didn't fall on their knees and cry out to God. But some widow from Sidon, she fell on her knees and God fed her and her household during that time. There were many lepers in Israel during Elisha's day. Remember what that means if you suddenly broke out with leprosy, you couldn't live in your home anymore. You couldn't live in community anymore. You had to wander around in the the wild places of Canaan. And if you saw anyone at a distance, you had to yell at the top of your lungs, unclean! So that they wouldn't come near you. You couldn't attend worship. You couldn't go to the market you lived off of whatever scraps people could leave for you somewhere and then they would leave so they wouldn't get your contagion and that could be for the rest of your life your own family couldn't interact with you anymore your spouse your parents your children And Jesus says there were a lot of those people in Israel. And Elisha was living right there in Israel. Where were they? Did none of them send word to the prophet of Yahweh? Apparently not. And here comes this rich pagan. Which shows us in part. Christ isn't just saying Gentiles. He's also saying that the poverty is spiritual in nature. Naaman was rich. And yet the gospel declared to the poor was declared to him. Because by the end of the story, Naaman is poor in spirit. He acknowledges his need. At first, he's too proud to dip in the Jordan River. What a gross river. We have better rivers. By the end, he's humbled before his God. He has nothing to bring, no pride to hold him back. And of all the lepers, this pagan general is healed. Christ says to Israel, and specifically to his hometown, even within Israel, You, my hometown, because I grew up here, you don't believe. And because you don't believe, you don't get the benefits. Of course they're mad at him. He's calling on them to acknowledge that they are poor, blind, and naked. He's leading them right to that point where in confessing their sins, they might receive from him The very thing he challenges the church in Laodicea to seek. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. White garments that you may be clothed. And that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with eye salve that you might see. Those I love, I rebuke. That's the message Christ is preaching here. But they're too proud to receive it. So they drag him out to the cliff. And There, of course, is the challenge for us as well. How easily do we fall into this in the church today? That we can fall into this attitude of, of, um, of only thinking outwardly. We're not poor. We don't need help. But there are some physically sick people. How easily we can fall into that. We fall into it in tacky and gaudy ways, like an Olstein type of way. Oh, well, people are basically good. And all they need is to be encouraged. Right? That's an easy way that we fall into it. It can be more subtle than that to replace an emphasis on repentance from sin with an emphasis on just social justice. I emphasize the just part. Because Christ did care for the physically poor, didn't he? We know that there was a money purse that he had Judas hanging on to for the disciples that was filled with money for the poor and it was administered to the poor. Apparently Judas did a really great job making it look like he was doing a good job at that. Because all the other apostles thought he was this loving, gracious man towards the poor. Christ cared about the poor. He had a ministry for that himself. And he does care for the sick. And he does heal them. And he does give sight to the blind. He cares about all of these things. And he cares about them today as well. He gives his church three offices or two offices, depending on if you see pastor as the same as elder or not. But the other one is deacon, isn't it? So that the saints might be coordinated in their mercy towards those in need. Christ cares. He does care outwardly. But so easy in the church to therefore ride off the spiritual side of things. And Christ would have us realize that we have a spiritual need. All the rest of that is nothing. Nothing. If we don't see our need for him or it can be in very subtle ways in a good church, how many people, because they're in a good church, feel proud about that and think they're okay, even though they have secret sins hidden away inside, hidden from each other, but not from the Lord. But because we're in a church that has all of our doctrinal pieces in the right order, we think. We have these sins and we think there's not a problem. We live too often with little repentance, if any. It's very easy in the church to be just like these people from Nazareth. And only think about the outward. And Christ is challenging us to buy from him. How can we buy if we're spiritually poor? He says, come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy, and eat. He says, if you are poor in spirit, it's on me. Come to me, repent, and I will provide all you need. Christ is clear about himself. He's the Messiah. He's clear about his audience. We must be poor in spirit if we are to have the kingdom of God. But finally, and this also challenges us about ourselves, it shows God knows who he's, Christ knows who he's talking to. We see Christ implying something about the day. I want you to glance at the text again, which Christ reads. And I'm going to read the full verses 1 and 2 from Isaiah 62, 61. And notice what Christ does. Realize that all the Jews in the synagogue knew this, this passage by heart, Probably but hear what Christ does. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. Notice what Christ does. He stops mid-sentence. It's not even the end of a paragraph. It's mid-sentence. He he declares to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and then he does whatever the scroll equivalent is to that. He shuts the book before the day of the Lord's vengeance. He's saying something very clear even there. He's implying that what was assumed to be a single day, the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of his vengeance in the coming of Emmanuel is indeed two comings of Emmanuel. He declares, I've come now in the day of grace and mercy to bring healing to bring riches, to bring freedom to the captive, to bring all these things. And he shuts the book. This is fulfilled. But one day we all will hear Christ give the equivalent to the end of that sentence. One day when the dead are raised and those who are living, who believe in Christ, are caught up with the dead to our Lord. And one day when he sits on his judgment seat and we stand on one side of him and all the rest who have lived in history stand on the other side of him, we will hear the equivalent as he declares the day of the vengeance of God the Father upon the wicked. And he will in essence be saying, this is fulfilled today. Depart from me. Or enter into your rest. That day is not yet come. And that's why we have hope today. Remember what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2. In, in the context of reflecting on Christ and Christ's wonderful work, Paul declares. For Christ says, In an acceptable time I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Don't you think Paul is reflecting on Isaiah 61 as well? The year of our Lord's favor. The acceptable year of the Lord, the the year in which the time in which you may fall before the judge and plead mercy and receive it before it's too late. And he pronounces his judgment. Paul says today is still that year that is acceptable for receiving his mercy. And since he has made it so clear who he is and what we need, we ought to humble ourselves and fall before his throne for mercy. Like Naaman, humbling himself and stepping into the muddy waters to receive from God full cleansing. So we need to come today For one day it will be too late when Christ declares, today God's wrath is fulfilled upon you. Christ here calls out to you from his word this morning as a hymn writer put it long ago. Are you weary, heavy laden? Are you sore distressed? Come to me, says one. And coming, be at rest. Thanks be to God.